Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Good morning and welcome to Good Morning. It is a good morning. Welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where once a month or maybe even once a week, we take a book and we have a good look at it. It's always a sales book. It's always about selling. Today, our guest on the show is Jamie Gallagher. Jamie, how are you? I'm good, Jonathan. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Jamie is the Senior Director of Sales at EMEA at Help Systems. He's just told me a fascinating story that for the first time ever, and it's a cool story, this, all 16 of his team all hit target all at once in the last quarter end. That's true. The Grand Slam, we're calling it. We're pretty pleased with ourselves. The Grand Slam. That's exciting, isn't it? To, that, that every single one of them's got over the line rather than one smashed it, carried the others. Yeah, must I be think... An, must be an easy team to manage, I'd have thought that. Oh, aren't they all, Michael? Aren't they all? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's exciting because... Um, you know, hitting target as a team is quite achievable a lot of the time if you've got a good product and you've got some of the right people, but you always have your A players and someone's always being carried. So it's really nice to go through it together as a unit. And everyone's pumped for quarter two now because everyone wants to repeat it, which works for me. Yeah, they, no, <laughs> nobody wants to be in the team that didn't do it again. Yeah, so it, it, well, it becomes a little self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? They say success breeds success, don't they? No, indeed. Well, yeah, imagine being the only player in the Ryder Cup that didn't win your singles match. Oh, my God, yeah. You know, it's the same. It's an it? interesting concept, the... isn't it? Mm-hmm. The great Wigan team of the 80s always said nobody wanted to be in the Wigan team that didn't win the Cup. It's uh, John Terry lifting the cup in his suit or switching into his kit when he didn't play. That always makes me chuckle, that one. <laughs> so today, we're talking about secrets of closing the sale. By the late, and some would say great, Zig Ziglar. Silence descends. Well, you see, I'm waiting. You see, you see, if I was a tennis player, I'd be a counter hitter. I'm waiting to see what our guest, Jamie Gallagher's first reaction is to this book before I wade into it, actually. Oh, really? oh am I leading off? Am I leading off? Oh, wow, okay. Um, it's old, isn't it? Is my first thought. Um, Even... Even with the revised edition, which is recently revised, isn't it, by Tom, his son? Yeah. Yeah, it's old. It's old. So I'll tell you what I first thought. Um, I started reading it, and anybody who tells you that they don't need sales 101 when they're on your team, I think you've got to watch that person because they're not paying attention to their own development, in my opinion. And then I started thinking as I was reading through the first bits of it, I started thinking, gosh, am I, am I, am I woke? Am I one of these woke <laughs> people? Because I just found some of the way it was written almost off-putting. So things it's like... sexist. Yeah, the redhead, the redhead trick. And I, I was like, oh, wow. But, you know, so I read through it. You know, it gives you... Um, in the first chapter, it gives you permission to skim through and read fast, um, which I kept remembering. So I kept moving through it fast, looking for things. So I don't know about you, Michael. I don't know about you, Jonathan. Have you got a drawer in the end of your kitchen full of stuff? Just full of stuff. But in yeah, that drawer, there's useful stuff as well, right? Like there's some batteries, batteries they've not used. There's batteries. a screwdriver, there's a tape measure, yeah. there's string, there's old receipt. I felt a little bit like this book was that. Right, so there is some nuggets in it. Amid, if you can sort of get through all the sexist stuff, get through all the, you know, the other thing. We, I sell software. We sell software. Our company. So, and it is a multiplayer job selling a lot of our software, and it's also a multi-buyer situation on the other end. You know, you're not selling to one person. but a lot of this felt like my first job was um, selling B2C, uh, the Prudential, years and years ago. 
over in Manchester. And I think a lot of the things that this suggests there would have been great for one-on-one conversions on the spot with someone. Whereas today, deploying some of the methods that this talks about, my, my, my team or my prospect might have gone, yeah, yeah, that's great. I agree with that. But then he would have had to go off and talk to another three people, build a business case and present it. So I think there are nuggets in here that are useful. I'm sure we're going to go through some of them as the um, hour progresses, but you did have to search for them. And some of them I felt were not really suitable for 2021 is my initial thoughts, but not all terrible. I listened to one of your book reviews um, that's on your channel. Um, I think where you gave the book a zero, not a zero (laughs) is, is what I would say. No, it's de- it's not zero for me. I, 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 my little story before we dive into it is I always listen to the audio book. So listeners to the show will know my methodology is audio book. Then I come back and speed read the hard copy and note it because I've already read it in my brain. So I know what's coming as I read it. And I can literally, I can get through three, 400 pages in three, four hours. And uh, <laughs> I didn't realize until six o'clock last night that I'd actually read the abridged version of the audiobook and not the entirety of the book. So it made it a little bit hard. Um, but what is interesting is the audiobook is a collection of these anecdotes and speeches by Zig himself. And when Mike and I first started talking about it a couple of weeks ago, Mike said, how are you getting on with secrets closing the sale? And I said, I'm loving it, Pricey. But actually, what I was loving was the fact that if you ever listen to any recordings of the late Zig Ziglar, he was a monumentally brilliant orator. I mean, literally, this guy, just incredible. You can see why people like Tony Robbins almost modelled themselves on him, because actually, he was unreal, fast-talking, and there's an energy about the way he talks. So... I kind of fell in love with the book and then I got to know the book and I fell out of love with the book, but I have like you, Jamie feel having read it by the last 80 pages, which I'm hoping you guys have, um, that there is some really good stuff in, but some of it has dated, uh, I think the whole thing, there is an, an underlying current of sexism which even as a pretty fuddy-duddy, soon-to-be-50-year-old male um, that's quite unapologetic about being um, semi-toxic as a bloke, uh, even I found I was about, come on, mate, it's it's 2021. We just don't talk like that anymore. Um, And I I didn't like that. Um, it, it, It was that undercurrent. But it, there are nuggets. My, what I did think when I, I, I was reading it last night was he says, read it a few times. There's that many nuggets in it that because you're reading it quickly, you're not, uh, and because a lot of those nuggets, because we're in B2B, a lot of those nuggets will take a lot of translating into our world. You'd have to look at each of the little nuggets and think, okay, how am I going to translate that into my life? Guys talking about selling pans. But they are translatable, but the translation will take time. So they're my opening comments. What are yours, Mike? Not much the same, really. A thing I really do like about it um, is I think, you know, this is the first time you and I have spoken, actually, Jamie, So, I, but I suspect from what you've said, we're on the same page, is in a lot of uh, uh, environments, selling and, and saying, I am a salesperson, uh, he's like an uncool thing to do, to do. We sort of hide away from it. But in fairness to Zig, yeah. he is a sales guy. And he's saying, listen, Unapologetic. selling is a good job. He's, a, he's saying it's a good job. And I really did like the sentiment behind that. It's obviously a B2C book for a man who sells pans. And I didn't like that because it's just not transferable in our market uh, in, in, in lots of ways. It is very old fashioned as well. You know, I don't know how many words there are in this monster of a book, but it's one of the thickest books on my bookshelf. Going back to your point, Johnny, about Zig, if no one's listened to a, a recording of Zig, you know, he makes he, his voice and delivery makes a lot of this. 
having listened yeah. to stuff. You know, he's got a, he's got a fabulous voice. He'd made, he'd made a brilliant talk show host, I think, Zig. Oh, um, amazing! Just fabulous. You know, he just sounds so good. Um, but actually, what the book is is the book is a bit like me getting all the Christmas crackers out of Tesco's, taking all the Christmas cracker jokes, <laughs> turning up and turning that into a stand-up comedy act, and just reading one after another. Somebody might laugh at the odd one, but, but you're going to wait a while to laugh at them. Is what yeah, I, I think, think it goes. You know Here's another that. of Dad's yeah. jokes. I think yes. if you're looking for a system, if you're looking for a methodology to follow, this isn't the book for you. Um, no, it's not. If you're looking for some uh, some thoughts, some of it is translatable, If you, but you've got to make it translatable. So, I mean, the the section on the puppy dog closing, yeah. And to me, that's just proof of concept and in the software world. Of course it right. is. Well, that's, that's, I think it's, it's like Zig Ziglar, um, coach Salesforce on that one, isn't it? Yeah. Of course it yeah. is. I think that is, um, it's, it, there's good bits in it, but like, like we say, it's a sifting job, right? And then there's yeah, some well, bits of it that are just clearly, you know, it's filler, it's, in my opinion. To, you know, you said it's a big book, Mike. Some of the sections in it are just to stretch this book out to 400 pages long. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, well I'll tell you what it is. He, he's not a writer, is he? He's just a talker. He's just, he's just written down all the words. Well, you know, it's interesting not, you say that, Mike, because my, my mind sort of ran off a little bit. And um, he didn't write it, did he? In oh, totality. No. It was uh, penned in association with a guy called Michael Medvin. Um, huh? which is um, America's leading business ghostwriter. Uh, oh, isn't so? Yes, uh, yeah. How has he managed the, that? Uh, if you look at the back, he talks about how far he got, and then he sent it out to about seven or eight people who all helped fill it in, and he justifies it by saying this is the, you know, it always takes an army to do things it's not a one person job which is correct um but i think that's where some of the padding may have come from because ziggler is a foundation right so i thought i had a little look beyond the book and he's made an incredible empire you know i think the thing that triggered that was tom ziggler wrote the foreword his son yeah and mm. ceo so i thought there's a bit more to this ziggler than just this book because this was the book i'd heard of and then yeah. I like spent about 20 minutes having a look at the rest of him. And it does fan out into this huge system of doing things around 33 books that he's written. And the family have clearly continued to milk the IP financially to the nth degree, have they not? Yeah, you don't, you don't shoot the prize pig, do you, Johnny, and eat it? <laughs> like the Jacksons. Yeah. <laughs> basically that and fair play to him you know he, he obviously I, I get the impression that there's obviously it's lucrative ip uh so and he did write a lot of books and the reality is it's funny because we talk about zig ziglar and we're going to get we'll dive in in a minute but what we're talking about here is if this was a rock album it's an extremely influential rock album but it's not an album you'd listen to every day if that makes sense yeah, yeah it, it does actually yeah uh, you know, if, if you spoke to lots of other musicians, you, they'd say, yeah, I learned a lot from listening to that record. Do you listen to it every day? No, <laughs> no, it's not, <laughs> no, it's not, it's not on, it's not on my playlist. Rumours is on my playlist. Um, but equally, it, it, it kind of has influenced so much that went thereafter. So I'm glad we've, I've read it. So I know it's you love so, rock, Johnny. So what is it? Is it Tubular Bells? Yes. No, because that's, unf <laughs> that's unfair to say it's Tubular Bells because Tubular Bells was so avant-garde. It's more mainstream than that. Okay. It's, it's, it's Please Please Me. I would never listen to Please Please Me. You know, oh, come on, do I want to listen to four 19-year-old Scousers every day? No. But, <laughs> do you know what I mean? They were a Scouse boy band. But actually, Please Please Me is one of the most influential albums of all time. And this is a bit Please Please Me. I I hate the Beatles. Uh, Mike hates Let's the Beatles. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> That's a conversation for when we finally get back to a proper indoor pub. Okay, so where should we start, Michael? Where, where, where do you reckon we should begin with this one? 
Well, well, I've I've done what I do in every book. I I, I go through it and, and and circle stuff. What's interesting, as Jamie just said, is it's not systematic. It's just one idea after another idea after another idea. Yeah. So I reckon we've just got to skip through it and pick out the he's ideas. Ran, it's like it, it's like he's had one a, a famous Johnny Graham rant and just not stopped. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, what I did like to start with, but then it waned on me. Really, is the is he's always using stories. Um. Brilliant. It was interesting when they started, but then they got quite dull as we went on. Um, no, but what it does tell you is the power of storytelling as a sales tool. Uh, well, yeah, and, and, and you know, to be fair, so, so if we look at page, I'm on page 19, it's just fallen open on page 19. He must have given us six, seven different closers already. So what I've actually done is uh, circled and thought about the closers that I actually thought were okay. Um, Are they closers though, Mike? Well, that's how he words them, yeah. He calls the closes. Uh, uh, I think that's a. I think we probably have to just get into the definition thereof, because they're not actually closes, are they? They're not the point at which the sale ends. They're just the things you might say in situations. Oh, I think in the truest sense of the word, they are closes. They're people to get. They're people there to get the prospect to sign the their checkbook for the. Pans the the pans that cost nine nine five. He doesn't add dollars on the front of it. He only uses numbers. And you don't say nine hundred ninety five. You say nine nine five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually say nine ninety five. Well, you do later on in the book, but that's something, yeah, something much he, more he alludes expensive. Yeah, to that later on in the book. And actually, I get his point. Well, well I what think... do you reckon to that, J- Jamie? So I don't know how much your software costs, but let's just say theoretically, it's a thousand. Your average order value is a thousand pounds. I'm sure it's not, but let's say it was. So you ask the opposite the prospect. Prospect goes, how much does it cost? Do you go, well, it costs a thousand pound a seat, or would you go, well, actually, it costs ninety nine nine five? I don't know because that's about think, transferability, isn't it? That's yeah, what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, I mean, our it's kind of a little bit different. Our, our software is built up in a modular basis, so it doesn't typically. The, and there's been a lot of thought of the psychology gone into it. You know, we all know customers don't like whole numbers. They like sevens, they like nines and all that sort of stuff. So that some of that does flow through. Um, yeah, I think we are. Yeah. I honestly don't know. 20,000? Uh, yeah, customers yes. see through it? How, mu- how, much, how much is the license, Jamie? Oh, it's, it's uh, 1795. I think a smart customer would be like, oh, come on, Jamie, is it, how much is it? Our, our customers would see through it. Our customers would eat us alive if we did that. This stuff should have, Mike, how much it cost? Yeah, we'd get, we'd get <laughs> eaten up, yeah. I think um, our, our customers are used to purchasing in a different way than when you purchase services from a recruitment agency. Right? Yeah, so different animals. They know, they know that there is typically a base cost and then there's elements as they stack it up so they know it can come out funny. Um, I think we, as an industry, though, we are going through an interesting change um, as, you know, people have been talking about a pivot to cloud for about 15 years. I think it's really, really happening now, right? So yeah, lots and lots of people are like, they don't want to buy in a perpetual model anymore. We are drifting towards the cloud in a significant way, in fact, I think more of our software sales are now cloud or subscription than um, they are perpetual. And we're, you know, we're an old business. We're 38 years old, which is old for software. Um, yeah. So it's quite a, a shift as we move from that. And I think in the software industry, the pricing is all over the place, right? So customers are used to seeing really varied pricing from customers, which is why I think trying to read this book and translate the messages into something that would be relevant. So we do do a book club at work, um, semi-inspired by you guys, right? We've read a couple oh, of the books kind. that you guys um, have read. Um, particular favorite of the team was Never Split the Difference, right? They loved yeah. that. Beauty. Beauty. Yeah, that they book, loved yeah. that. Um, but I think... The thing, the first thing that grabbed me about the book, and I circled it like you do, Mike, and wrote it. Um, chapter one is entitled "The Core Secret," and that's the Kevin bit. And I circled it and wrote, "Hopefully, this will save the four hundred pages 
<laughs> if I can just read this, and it's going to give me sort of like the exact summary of the whole thing. Unfortunately, it didn't. But the first thing I did like, and um, one thing that we say to everybody in our organization, from salespeople through to support, through to finance, it was the first message that really hit me is everything is selling. Yeah. And I think that is a nice message that you've got to get ingrained into everyone across the organization that every interaction you have whether you are asking the customer to turn it on and off reload the software whatever you know is the have you put the pan on the hob properly you know it's got to be done with the customer in mind and thinking that you what you're selling is up for grabs but you've got to leave that customer in a positive with a positive light of your organization and you as the salesperson the support person the admin person or the finance person and I think it goes a bit deeper than that in a way, Jamie, in as much as later in the book, there's a whole section on the fact that everything is selling, isn't there? Yeah. Um, actually, there's a, a, there's a depth to that that Michael and I see as recruiters, uh, and we've talked about many times on the show, which is the, the salespeople that are unapologetic sales professionals are always the ones there's two things. One is they're unapologetic for what they do. And there is no, they are shameless. Shameless is probably the unfair word. They are proud of what they do as a craft and a profession. They always do better than the ones that try and obfuscate it. And two is the ones whose DNA, if you, if you cut them in half and looked in, in the middle, like a stick of rocket, say salesman, Mm. Um, they do better as a recruiter, as a recruiter sitting in, sitting outside, looking in our little crow's nest at the industry, they always, 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 always do better than the ones that are, does you see them where sometimes I remember once many years ago. They're apologetic about being a sales. Yeah. Many years ago. I remember once, I don't know if Steve listens to the show, but Steve Griffith once wrote on a candidate card, uh, an embarrassment to his parents. <laughs> and I knew what he meant that the guy thought that the, he, he, uh, he was ashamed of being a salesman, educated public school parents had spent fortunes on his education, ended up in sales, was all always a bit embarrassed about it. Could never quite work out why his career was going nowhere. And it was because actually, as Zig would say, it one, he didn't, he, he'd never bought the pans and he didn't believe. And two, he didn't believe in what he did. Agreed. Right, let me let me take so, to page twenty twenty seven, if I may. Um, I thought this was very interesting. This isn't about closing. Actually, this is what Zig says. Zig's question on page twenty seven is: Is the sales process something you do to somebody, or something you do for somebody? And then he says: If in your heart you really feel the sales process is something you do to the prospect, then you are a manipulator. Can I just chime in real quickly? It's just maybe chuckle. Yeah. I've got a different version of the book. That's my Me page twenty seven. What version of the book? Oh, Price has bought the old version, Jamie, because he's tight. Yeah, I, he's I am tight. the tightest person on earth if you get to know. Me. <laughs> but anyway, the it's question not fair being to is, say Mike's tight. He's frugal. The question being is, is, is this... <laughs> but no, you, that's brilliant, Mike, and I'll tell you why. That is a brilliant point. It is a brilliant point. Um, I'm sure at some point you've done Myers-Briggs or disk analysis or something like that. And quite often, salespeople have got really high persuasion skills, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of my team have. I know I have. Part of the danger with this is you have to be careful with that talent that you have because you can get people to buy stuff off you. Yeah. You could get people to buy utter nonsense off you. You know, the amount of time I've been in the pub and I've been, you know, spinning a yarn as i'm sure you two guys have and people have leaned in and gone is that true and you go no it's absolute nonsense i'm making it up but they were <laughs> in that moment they had bought it from you and i think he's right i think you know and this is why some unscrupulous people like like the fellow who died yesterday bernie madoff i mean i assume he was the most amazing salesperson oh he'll have been unreal he will have been he'll have been an absolute god but it's easy to be a god when you're selling a ponzi scheme so so how then so how then does one police that you know let's let's say 
this would never have happened to any of our listeners. But let's say they were the sales manager of a team of software salespeople. They've got 10 software salespeople, nine of whom were on target. The 10th is close. And you look at the 10th and think, ah, you've manipulated the process. Do you, does that get policed or do you let it ride? Because a lot of the uh, definition of whether we're manipulating people or not is self-policed, uh, isn't it? I think you never know, Mike. And so, I think the thing about manipulation is nobody ever knows who's manipulated whom until quite a long way after the sale. And the only people who know that the manipulation took place after the sale is the salesman who has to live with it. I think the salesperson knows whilst they're doing it. Uh, yeah. They, 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 the salesperson has to live with it and live with the consequences and the customer. So, and so, so, so as somebody who has manipulated and is ashamed of it in his earlier years of his career because he realised he was really good and could do it and could get away with it, after a while it really does begin to eat away at you and it makes you a much lesser sales professional. Unless you're a sociopath, and then you don't care, and Correct. you just keep on doing but it. If, if you're anything like a normal or pleasant human being, after a while, it begins to eat away at you. Um, and core malpractice you, is going to come back and get you, though, Johnny, right? It's what? Core malpractice. If you're doing something <laughs> manipulative yeah. and wrong yeah. time after time after time, it will come round and get yeah, you, you soon eventually. Find, you soon find out, because customer well, X doesn't... That you, you can't quite work out why customer X never wants to work with you again, and you think, but, 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 but... Well, you can work but, out. You know why. So here's one for you, Jamie. You must, you must walk into environments with a prospect, you know, whoever it is, I don't know, Asda, whoever, and think, oh, my God, this IT estate is just full of crap that people should never have bought in the first place. You must yeah. see that over and over and over again. Yeah, and or even worse, they've bought the right stuff and they've not turned it on. Yeah, shelfware. Yeah. yeah. But, I, but I thought that was interesting from Zig that he talks about that because – when you get reading the book and we talk about the closes and we go further on, there's, I don't know, however many, 100 closes, whatever, they seem manipulative in the way that he's doing, you know. But but actually, I think that I, don't, I, I doubt that Zig's a manipulator, really. But or, he makes he put, a core point, Mike, which is uh, providing you're doing it with positive. His point is it's okay providing you 100% are totally certain you're doing the right thing by making the sale. So at an ethics level, Zig's point is it's okay to have a slightly manipulative strategy in order to get the customer to buy, providing what you're doing ethically, you know, is a really good fit for the customer and ethically will solve a problem for the customer and is the right thing for that customer to buy at that point in time. And that's his, that's his way of handling what in reality is 400 pages of manipulations. True. True. Uh, Here's an interesting one for you then. Jamie, this won't be on the same page because you've obviously got the inf an inferior copy of the book. Um, on page 31, he goes, people buy what they want when they want it more than what the money costs. And his story is about Bone China. And he I said, really oh, like that. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. I think and that, this, that's the madness of this book. It's, it's full of little nuggets. That's a nugget. Just say it again, Mike, because it's a nugget. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the sort of thing you should have on a post-it note above your monitor. I agree. People buy what they want when they want it more than they want the money it costs. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's that's totally true. And I think um, this is, uh, you know, let's let's get a little bit, um, you know sociological for a minute this is maslow's hierarchy of needs isn't yeah. it right and this is uh this is once beats needs this is we've got the base level sorted now i'm just going to go and buy something ridiculous this is why you see uh loads of youths who still live at home with their parents driving around in brand new spanking mercedes because they don't Very think fun. what i should really do is lay some investment down and buy a house what i really need to do is buy a forty thousand pound car um, we we know uh, one. Mike you know, and I know one. Mike and I know well, one who's driving around in a nine eleven and living at his mum's. Yeah, he's twenty eight. Twenty eight years old. He's driving in nine eleven and lives at his mum's. Hi, uh, mummy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, know, I think I think part of this, the first chapter for me was the hook to get you, or the first section is the hook to get you bought in to establish enough cred credibility 
with enough nuggets to make you read, read on. on. Yeah. Um, and I think he, I think he does that because the stories are personable, relatable. Because you know we've all bought the equivalency of something we shouldn't when we had better things to spend the money on. And I think you read some of these anecdotes and you think, I can see me in that. Yeah, I remember the time I acquired X when I should have been saving for Y. So uh, yeah. I think they do a good job in in that section. I, um, I really like his story about the house. Apart from the, the ridiculous allusions to the redhead that where uh, his wife took him to a house that they couldn't afford. Yeah. And uh, she goes... Uh, I'll, I'll read it here. Look at the size of this den, honey. Aren't those aren't those exposed beams gorgeous? Without waiting for an answer, she continued, and just look at your fireplace with all those bookshelves around it for your books. All of a sudden, everything gets to be mine. Brilliant. I can just see you watching the cowboys whip somebody on a, a Sunday afternoon out of one eye while watching your fire out of the other. That, uh, you see, again, it's another little gem where he's explaining in a story how his wife's future paced him on the house. And all of a yeah, sudden, yeah. she's showing him a house he can't afford. But actually, he's sat there thinking, yeah, I can just see myself watching the Cowboys here on a Sunday afternoon. And that's, that's great stuff. I mean, I'm a big fan of a future pace in a sales scenario and taking clients. So let's just go down the road six months from now. Let's just imagine it. You've got, you're working with us. We've done the job for you. What would that be like for you? Yeah, it'd be brilliant, Johnny. Right, okay. Why don't we get going on it then? And I, I, that's a favourite strategy of mine. And he was talking about it. When, when's he written this? 60s, 70s? 60s, yeah. So it's as old as the hills. You know, it, none of it's that new, is it? No, no. But is any of selling that new? No. It's a wheel that we keep reinventing, isn't it? I just disagree then with that says, completely. <laughs> what, what do we think to the comment here? I believe most oh, salespeople... No, 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 I want Michael's disagreement. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, your comment is any selling real? Yeah, hundred percent. Loads of it. <laughs> uh, you what know, do you mean? if you read, so so if you read this book, this book is written by a man who is clearly visual. Yeah, very visual. All of his examples are visual. So then, when did NLP gain its uh, popularity? Seventies. Bandler and Grinder did the studies in the. But early when did 70s. it gain popularity in selling? Early two thousands, I would have said. Yeah, no, mid 2000s. No. Yeah. NLP was massive in the 70s and then it went out of fashion. 80s and 90s came back in. Yeah, but it wasn't massive as a sales tool. People weren't selling using NLP in the 70s. They started selling using NLP in the early 2000s. So that is an addition to the sale, I think. And also, Jamie, and you, you know, it's a good job we're not face to face here. I can see this kicking off. Um, <laughs> I think the IT industry has changed the way people sell stuff, actually. And I think that has then presented its own evolution on what's selling and what's not, which is what How makes How do you mean, this... Mike? Well, if you look at Salesforce, you know, entering the market, whenever it was, 2000, whenever, I, I could vaguely remember I was in recruitment, it's oh, about two. 2002. Yeah. They, I mean, I don't know this, so I'm, I might be misquoting, but I think they were probably one of the first companies who actually effectively used a SaaS-based puppy dog clothes. And everybody since then has started copying that. I think that fundamentally changed the way that the IT market works now with free demo, free demos, SDR, business development, external salespeople. I don't know. I don't think anyone was doing that in the 90s it's or 2000s. It's fundamentally changed the nature of selling in its own I think right, so, yeah. in as much as it's not as hard to sell stuff. Well, it's different, actually. It's a bit like, and they were going completely off tangent, but I guess that's the purpose of the show, really. It's a bit like when people first started playing golf, they started playing with a few clubs, you know, a bag of five or six. Whereas now, if you want to start your golf bag, you're picking from 20 clubs. And actually selling is a bit like that now. There are a lot more clubs to play the same game. And lo and behold, the individuals are producing better results because it's, uh, because it's more honed to the individual environment. What do you reckon, Jamie? I think there's more. Yeah, I agree with the um, Salesforce stuff. Particularly, um, I do think the whole, uh, I mean, the try before you buy isn't new. No. You know, I mean, we call it the proof of concept, puppy dog clothes, but, you know, they've been giving you test drives of the car for years, right, before um, any of that happened. I think um, 
I think we've actually started to, you know, the Rackhams of the world have been around for a long time, right? And I, I, I love Neil Rackham and Spencer, and I think that all that stuff is great. I think the actually, I think Mike's point of it actually started to become mainstream adopted is spot on. I think in like the early 2000s, I would say, I don't know, and these, these are probably not wrong, these numbers, maybe 20% of people were approaching it as a science with a methodology, with a process. Along the lines of predictable revenue, we're talking, right, with the MQL, SQL, BDR, SDR, and all that sort of stuff into it. Um, and I do think, I think part of the the initial disdain for the book was that I was probably looking at it through that lens because, you know, part of the snob in me was saying, this is interesting, but it's not sophisticated enough for what I do. And part of that's correct and Good part comment. of it's incorrect as well. That, that's a very, uh, what's the right word? That's a very humble and good comment that. Part of the snob in me doesn't want to be associated with a man who was selling pans in 1963. <laughs> quick question, quick side question before we move on. Did anyone go and have a look at sa- Salad Master Pans, which is what he was no. selling? I had a quick look at the internet. Yeah, just, I, thought, I, I thought I'll see if this company's still going. And they still sell really expensive pans. And I was like, like Le okay. Creuset type. Stainless steel ones, but yeah, basically. That sort of, you buy one, buy them for a wedding and, and theoretically the family should never need to buy another set again in their yeah. lives. Yeah. That kind of gear. Cool. Maybe I'll well, buy Mrs. Graham a nice set of pans after this. Surely you mean the redhead, Johnny. Mrs. Graham has enough money to buy her own pans. Uh, what did you think to the credibility section? Um, I think credibility at a general level is an incredibly important subject. How he refers got... to it, I'm, I'm less sure. Because um, he, he's talking a lot more about integrity, isn't he, than credibility. I think in, a, in our world, so credibility for me as a recruitment consultant is the book I've got coming out in a couple of weeks, IRC Book Club that people know, you know, why do we do book club? So people look at Mike and me and go, okay, these guys actually get it. Um, they understand. They understand our world. They, they have empathy. And he does talk a lot about empathy. Uh, and mm-hmm. that, it, that is important, isn't it? Um, but it, it's almost, he it, it starts off by talking about credibility, but he doesn't dive into what credibility is, I think, in the modern sales world, to him, it's all about, well, you've, you've got to be a good guy. Then there is a bit here, um, you know, I wrote here, he's right. Things like a good shine on your shoes, the well-pressed suit, skirt or dress, the neatness of your hair. Whether you're smiling and courteous, on time, thoughtful, considerate of your prospect's time, whether you're organised, practice good human relations with follow-up reminders and thank you notes and countless other little things that will determine whether you miss or make the sale. He's right. Yeah, yeah, that is. It's the little details. Seasoned salespeople still that have been doing this 20 years. We'll go to a meeting. I'll say, did you send the follow-up email? Because I, I, I've not had a copy of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And I think this is hundreds of thousands of dollars of software we're selling. And you've not sent a follow-up email with the next action. It's like, I think a lot of people are dying to take shortcuts. They're dying to subvent their own it's process. It's those little things. Like the, and those little bits of humanity, the thank you for your time, thank you for buying off. Listen, it's that little bit of the quick call to your customer. Listen, it's me. Uh, have the guys turned up all right to do start the project? Yeah, good. Listen, I just want to say thank you. What for? Yeah. Thanks for believing in me. They're, they're the little things that make you a credible pro, aren't they? Yeah, indeed. indeed. Those little bits of humanity. My wife, when she wins big deals, bakes cakes, takes it to the customer. Fair play, but it's a thank you. It's a, a moment of humanity that says we're in this together. Me and you work together. I've baked you a cake. So, so turning Good that back on you from, from, you want one of my cakes. So talking to you about that, then, Jamie, who, who, who wins in your uh, arena? Do you think the most credible sales force, or could you have a complete shambles of a sales force just with a much better product? I mean, you, I. We're set up a little bit 
differently. So some of our pro- we're niche leaders in some of our um, product offerings. So our software is you know although people want to test it or because they're going to tailor it specifically to their environment, we know that there are only two or three um, other softwares that can even compare to what we do in most of our in most of our spheres. Um, so it then comes down to um, it comes down to how many people are involved in the buying decision, and it, it, it comes down to how it integrates with what they've got, and it does come down to the relationship. It comes down to are we managing expectations? Are we going above and beyond? Are we giving them enough access to get them? You know, we all talk about these business cases of how they're going to get their ROI and how it's going to be transformational. It's whether we show enough credibility in the salesperson and the wider team to get them up to speed to actually access these benefits as quickly as possible. And of course, the price does come into it because, you know, over time, no matter how good it is, things tend to go to commoditization over time, whatever it is you're selling. Yeah, okay. I, I think that's I think that's bang on. So here's the bit I like. So this is this this is chapter five, I think. Voice training to close sales. Yeah. Okay. I think this is really interesting because I have got two examples. I've just placed a man who does listen to show. His name is Peter. He started with an AI company about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And and I've said this to him. He is one of the loveliest, most infectious men you've ever spoke to in your life. I am sure. What a nice thing to say about someone, Mike. Lovely guy. Really do have an awful lot of time for him. I I am sure that he engages with his clients because he has got such a nice tone to his voice and he comes across great. You can't help but put the phone down to him and think, well, he's a good guy. Like him. You just can't. It's just brilliant. Do you think that's nurtured? No, I think that's just him. That's just what he is. You think it's his natural default yeah. setting? I think if you live next door to him, you know, you'd be happy he was your neighbour. Is the tone of voice nurtured? Is it is it cultivated? Uh, not in him, I don't think. Not in him, I don't think. That's what he is. Okay. The best, on the other flip side, the best salesman I have, uh, and our top three probably, because I don't discount anybody, but definitely top three I've ever met in 21 years, is the dullest man. <laughs> You have ever, literally, it is like listening to somebody reading the shipping forecast when you speak to him. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell you what, he can't off-sell stuff, though. He has got so a doesn't, sterling Doesn't Ziggy come to that? Doesn't he talk about the, the, the guy? The introvert and the extrovert. No, no, yeah. no. There's a guy he actually specifically calls out that nobody thought was going to do anything. And he, he describes him as unkempt, ruddy-faced, sweaty, but then he sort of just goes on and on to become like the top sales guy in the region. Correct. And then he, he talks about the um, pressure permission close that he executed in front of him when he was selling the pans, where he ha- practically had an argument with um, the customer, but then said, oh, did the whole fake packing away thing, which made me chuckle. Because I've actually seen that done very early on in my career. Something similar, something similar, where halfway through a a brilliant, brilliant sales lead that I worked for, the customer said something, and he literally shot his bag, and he said, I'm not selling it to you. Come on, we'll go in, Jamie. You're not having it. <laughs> and the customer's like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 hold on, hold on. And I was like, I was like, what strange voodoo is this? <laughs> this is my, like, my first job. And he was like, and he's like, I, I can't go any further because, you know, you, you. and then he, start, he started saying to the prospect, you're going to, and it's straight out of this book, actually, if you think about it, you're going to tell me this, you're going to tell me that, you're going to tell me the other, and I'll tell you my product kills it because of this and that and the other, and you still won't want to buy because you just it's not for you. And the customer's like, hang on, yes, it is. I can, I, I can afford. And yeah, said, brilliant. Like, brilliant. Yeah, I'll, brilliant. T- I'll tell you, an industry where that's a very easy tool to use is recruitment, Jamie. And it's funny because sometimes Mike and I are, are, are honest to a point of ridiculousness 
We're honest to um, a point at which it unnerves people. Yeah, about, so sometimes I'll ring a client, they'll go, what's your candidate like? And I'll go, he's all right. What do you mean he's only all right? He's all right. I mean, what are you paying, 50 grand? He's about what you get for 50K. He's all right. He's a bit scruffy. <laughs> Missed target last year. He's a nice lad. I think he could do with a bit of a break. Uh, he's a bit weird with the way he talks. But uh, do you know what? I think fundamentally he'd probably work quite hard for somebody and I reckon it'd be somewhere near Target come the end of next year. The client go, brilliant! When can I see him? <laughs> I can remember once <laughs> and, describing... And, and we get that, uh, and it happens. Mike's, one of the, the epic ones was, is, is Mike will tell you the story. <laughs> and the more honest we get, the more clients want to see the candidates. It's mad. So the less we sell, the more we sell. Yeah. yeah. So, so, the, so the epic story... It's, it's bonkers. Uh, this guy, the hiring manager, listens to the show. He goes, and this is about 10 years ago. He went, what's your candidate like? I went, well, I remember the uh, clown off Brassed Off, the really depressed clown that sat in the corner. He goes, yeah. I went, exactly the same. He went, brilliant, I'll see him. And he hired and he him. And he hired him. <laughs> yeah, and he was there for five years. But anyway, getting back to this, because you've taken me off tangent. How important is a salesperson's voice when talking to a prospect? May I begin? I do believe... So I wrote at the top of this chapter, brilliant, totally agree, but no one will ever do it. Well, cassette recorder. Nobody will ever record their voice. Nobody will ever practice it. Nobody will ever work on it. I, in our original ops manual, there was a whole section on using your voice, particularly with gatekeepers. I, do, I still do it today. Yeah, you do it. I do it. I could never, ever sell it to new recruits to do it. Come on, Jamie, what do you reckon? Is the voice important? Tonality, uh, speed? People just yeah, think you totally. mentally. Totally. Uh, I don't think... I think people do do it. I don't think people realise they do it, and I don't think people work on it. I remember my Prudential training, which was a lot like this, a lot because that was B2C. It was a lot of visual. And, you know, we used to actually have, like, this um, piece of double-sided A4 card with all these things on that we took them through. So it was really nice crutch. And you would ask them about life insurance and you, you were told to do it like this. You were told to say, so Johnny, um, what life insurance cover do you have in place? And then you were told just to hold a completely dead pan. Um, and then whatever they said, you were given two responses. The first one was to say, that's fantastic, Johnny. You are taking this seriously. Congratulations, Johnny. You are wanting to look after Mrs. Graham after you die. But it's not quite to the standard, is it, Johnny, that you are living now? <laughs> is that how you want to leave Mrs. Graham? Not quite at the standard she's at now? And like, you know, they even down to screwing up the face and everything. I can remember it vividly. And then the other one is if um, they had nothing in place, you were supposed to go, Nothing, and then just leave the silence. But it worked, though. That I, I, I never worked. It never worked. That's real selling. And do you know what, Jamie? I'd be interested to do a study, okay, of salespeople in the sector, and take those that started in a real coalface B to C environment like that, where their training was in reality in its own little way class leading and very detailed versus those that went straight into B2B and look at where they ended up in their careers. I think the ones that started at the real coalface, I bet loads of them ex have exceeded the careers of those that have always been in Queensbury rules B2B. No, you might be right. You might be right. Because I think that you'll have learned stuff as a salesman selling life insurance in the early days of your career that is unconsciously competent in you now that you don't even realise you're doing, that's just uh, uh, delivers an excellent base layer of your salesmanship that other people just won't have. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could see that. So I think, yeah, so I, I get it. And I, I think the whole, he's so right. Use your voices at all. We, I once worked with a fellow many years ago who was a former radio presenter. Mike Kenny. Yeah, can you remember him? 
He had this Mike, radio well, I voice. Remembered it immediately. When awesome. he spoke to you, it sounded like he was presenting the morning breakfast show. It was ace. A good yeah. salesman. He had that whole good morning and welcome. It's 8.30 and you're in your car. It, but it didn't sound like Alan Partridge. You just sounded like, you, you felt like you were on Capital FM or whatever it was the moment he spoke to you. It was just an incredible voice. Well, he made he, he made you feel good. Made, he made you feel good. Fortunes. Well, the other one is fortunes. that we, it's, it's, it's quite often we had a candidate who was French by uh, birth, lived in England a long time, but he still had a French accent. Professional and Frenchman. And actually, he was just a professional Frenchman. I used to say he was a professional Frenchman. What does he do? Yeah. Oh, he's, he's French. And yeah. it, literally, he kind of made a living out of being a professional Frenchman. Is he any good at new business? Well, he's French. Right, okay. Well, but, it, it, you it, know... It was an act. He was, it was he like was, a weird little act, wasn't it? He, he was memorable. And he made you feel... Like this guy, Peter, he makes you feel good. This At the, the start of the conversation, he makes you feel good. And I think if you can sit down with a prospect, associate good feeling with your product, then that's a big step in the right direction. Yeah. So in conclusion, guys, I, I think this is, for me, one of my favourite chapters in the book. But if I took a hundred people, I reckon five of them would sit there and think, do you know what? I'm going to work on my vocal tone and I'm going to think about my inflections. So They do, it, they do well. So it's the little things. Remember, nobody has to get past gatekeepers anymore because the gatekeepers are all working from home. You know, we've all had a year, 13 months now of cold calling without gatekeepers, which has been brilliant. But in the days when we used to have to get past gatekeepers, um, you know, one of the things we used to work on a lot with the people that worked for us was vocal intonation with the gatekeepers, sounding like you belonged, sounding like mm. you were a CEO without sounding arrogant. Um, and it was always very, very, very hard to train people to do it. Predominantly because they thought it was bullshit. <laughs> <laughs>